The following conversation with Tony Gilpin, author of The Long Deep Grudge, originally aired on May 1st, 2020 on the Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. The Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role that music plays in social justice and protest, and it airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Tony Gilpin, welcome to KPOV and the Radical Songbook. Thank you, Michael, for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it very much. You're um, taking some time there at home in Chicago. So um, I really enjoyed reading your book, um, and um, I guess I'd like to start with the title of your book. So what is The Long Deep Grudge? Well, uh, the title itself is drawn from a quote from the great Chicago writer Nelson Algren. Uh, and in fact, I am going to, if that's okay, I'm going to just read a short section from that to, yeah. um, to give you a, a flavor of where the, where the uh, title comes from. Yeah. And also, it obviously draws from that quote, but there's a deeper meaning there about the uh, reason we need to reflect on uh, struggles in the past, from the past, and how they influence later struggles for workers. And um, so that is the legacy of earlier struggles, specifically Haymarket, is one of the frameworks for the book. So the uh -huh. title comes from... Nelson Algren's Chicago City on the Make, uh, written in 1951. And there's a, you can find this quote in the book or the longer excerpt, but I'm just going to read a short part of it. And it speaks of the big dark grudge cast by the four standing in white muslin robes, hands cuffed behind at the gallows head for the hope of the eight-hour day. The long, deep grudge born for McCormick the Reaper. And the quote goes on, and it's in the book, but uh, specifically the title refers to the long history, labor history in Chicago that uh, that springs from the original Haymarket riot, as it is often referred to, and the Haymarket martyrs who were hung for uh, that bombing, and the connection of the McCormick family uh, who founded the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company, which later morphed into International Harvester, and that connection to the farm equipment workers who organized um, International Harvester and always made reference to Haymarket. So the long, deep grudge is about um, the uh, need to remember those that legacy of struggle that goes way back in labor history. Right, and so and like as you just said, the the FE, the farm equipment workers, they they embrace that legacy and actually, uh, I, in your book you have um, depictions of flyers that they produced um, that referred back to the Haymarket that they handed out to members as they were going into the shops and stuff. So they really encouraged their members to embrace that legacy. Right. I think um, as much, if not more, than any American union, the leadership of the farm equipment workers, the FE, the union that came to be in the 1930s, um, really embraced the radical um, historical legacy that um, was part of the industry that they organized. So 
the McCormick family and the McCormick plant was central to that Haymarket uprising to the eight-hour day organizing that was going on then. It was one of the biggest factories in Chicago at the time, and it was a skirmish conflict between police and strikers during that eight-hour struggle that led in front of the McCormick factory that led to the Haymarket protest the next evening. Um, Several workers were killed by the police during that confrontation, and it was that confrontation that led to the um, protest at Haymarket Square the next evening where the bombing occurred and then where um, the Haymarket anarchists were accused of um, murder for their supposed part in that in that bombing and the death of policemen there. And of course, we know that, in fact, there was no evidence that connected those anarchists to the creation or throwing of the actual bomb. It was just the words and radicalism that they embraced that they really were on trial for and which they hung for. So that those Haymarket martyrs were um, embraced as the FE then in the 1930s was um, formed and the same McCormick family was still running International Harvester, which had become uh, one of the largest corporations in the world. And so it was very often that the FE leaders referred to the long history of anti-unionism in the uh, in International Harvester and um, made specific use of their enmity towards the McCormicks and their role in promulgating first very sort of open and uh, visceral anti-unionism and later more sophisticated anti-union techniques. Um, so yes, I think the FE was really conscious of its connection to earlier struggles. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly interesting that, I mean, there's not a lot of unions then or now in modern U.S. history that would actually um, be willing to um, say something positive about anarchism, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just sort of like, yeah, I don't think we'll go there, you you know. But, and just for... yeah, I, I want our listeners to understand, FE, the Farm Equipment Workers, was one of many industrial unions that were organized in the mid-30s. There was an upsurge of the Committee of Industrial Organization out of the uh, American Federation of Labor that ultimately became the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And uh, so there's there's that, that Haymarket legacy that sets, set the FE apart from other industrial unions at that time. What else would you say was, was something that, that – that set FE apart from the other unions then. Right. And I should say that in my book, I not only uh, reference Haymarket and talk about uh, that particular incident, but do talk about the evolution. Uh, The first shorter part of my book discusses uh, craft unionism, the craft unions that were prevalent in that McCormick plant that were broken by Cyrus McCormick II in his um, a very open uh, desire to rid the plant of any of those craft unions. So one of the sort of themes of the book also is the evolution of unionism, of forms of unionism, the the slow but um, steady uh, move from that sort of exclusive and um, insular craft unionism toward the more uh, inclusive uh, industrial unionism that we see with the rise of the CIO in the 1930s. So that's one of the 
the things that I also explore in the book. So it is true, certainly, that the FE was part of that CIO uprising in the 1930s with the Great Depression and with the organizing of those giant factories with the auto workers, the steel workers, the electrical workers, et cetera. They were all part of that, um, that great leap forward for um, workers. But there is and was something uh, extraordinary and different about the FE as I try to make the case anyway in terms of the radical uh, uh, philosophy of unionism that the leadership embraced and how that then trickled down to the shop floor. So they had much in common on, on many levels with the steel workers, the auto workers, but um, in large part because the FE was among the smaller number of unions that was profoundly influenced by the Communist Party. They had a different approach to um, just how unions should operate and just what uh, being in a union should mean than some of those unions that have survived to this day. During that time, there were a lot of communist, socialist, left radicals that were involved in helping unions to organize, the auto workers among them, the steel workers. The leadership of unions would allow them to organize the workers, and then once they were organized in the union, they would say, see you later. And right. uh, we don't we don't want to have anything to do with you. And and a few of the unions, with FE being one of them, the United Electrical Workers being another, where where mm -hmm. communists did play a, a larger role in the in the leadership for a longer period of time. What was it that that you felt that the field of the Communist Party brought to FE and brought to union organizing that made it possible for FE to have the impact that it did at? International Harvester and yeah, many of the of the studies of communism in the American labor movement, especially older ones, tend to. Although actually, this this cuts across political philosophy of the of the authors who who wrote those studies tended to argue that that the influence of the Communist Party on these unions, and as you note, um, in the 1930s, it was certainly true and recognized by all labor historians that communist organizers were essential um, to organizing in these major industries in the 1930s. They were never the predominant um, group, but their um, dedication and uh, experience in organizing, many of them had been organizers in the, back in the 1920s when not much was going on, uh, um, made, made a huge difference in terms of the ability to uh, organize these against these fiercely anti-union companies like General Motors and Ford and U.S. Steel and International Harvester. Um, but what did it mean to have those kind of, to have people with that orientation in a union leadership? And generally speaking, the consensus had been, well, it, it affected what the union might publish on the, in their union newspaper, the political positions they might take, but it really didn't make any difference um, in terms of the contracts that a union was negotiating or the way in which a union behaved on the shop floor. That was all just about uh, personalities and differences in the particular industries. And so one of the main arguments that I make is that, in fact, the communist and Marxist orientation of the FE's leadership made a huge difference in terms of the contracts the union negotiated, in terms of its philosophy of unionism, and that that had a big impact on shop floor behavior. And so to be more specific, uh, uh, the FE embraced a theory of unionism that encouraged 
militancy at all levels. So, for example, in the years from 1946 to 1955, there were over 1,000 strikes in international harvester plants that were represented by the FE, which is a staggering statistic by um, current day standards, but really by, certainly by even by the standards of the, that day comparing them to other unions. So part of that was that the FE really believed that workers' grievances should be addressed immediately and when they could not be resolved um, in the shop right away, then often the best um, resolution for workers would be achieved by walking out of the plant. And so those statistics reflect that. Um, the FE's leadership articulated a philosophy of unionism that was uh, distinctly different from that which was embraced by those labor statesmen that come to dominate the labor movement after World War II. So the FE rejects the concept of labor management Peace um, in term and, and instead, and it rejects what it comes to be called the politics of productivity, the notion that you could uh, negotiate a settlement based on an ever expanding economy that would be good for both sides because of their left wing orientation. The FE leadership believed that in order for workers to get more, that employers had to get less. And here's another quote from the book. Um, uh, the FE uh, believed that this notion of labor management cooperation is an ideology that belies the fact that there is only one side for business, its side, and that it operates on the principle of getting as much as it can. It can only be deterred in its exploitation by applying economic and political power 365 days a year. So that also meant specific rejection by the FE of some of the contract clauses that became part of that labor management cooperation. So for example, the FE fought against long contracts. They believed in only having one year um, contracts whenever possible. They fought against no strike clauses. They wanted to retain the power for workers to walk out when they had problems on the shop floor. They were against things like cost of living increases and productivity pay increases, which sound attractive, but which they believe limited uh, the ability of workers to actually collect what was coming to them. So all of those things marked some really distinct differences between the FE and the unions that were not under the influence of the Communist Party, that did not embrace a Marxist framework as they approached labor management um, negotiations. And so a Marxist framework, a Marxist orientation is, is a challenge to the economic system itself, capitalism. One other thing that you, you talk about in the book that the Communist Party brought to the FE and brought to the labor movement generally was the whole idea of building racial unity uh, on the shop floor. Can you talk a bit more about that? Right. And here again, I think the FE was really an extraordinary um, case and one that hasn't been paid much attention to uh, on this front or any other front until now. And, and I say that because uh, the FE was mostly located, the, the plants that it organized in the farm equipment agricultural implement industry were located in the uh, Midwest for the most part. Um, so hence the subtitle of my book talks about the American heartland. And many of these plants were located in 
Um, some, many of them were, some of them were in Chicago, but other places like East Moline, Illinois, and downstate Illinois, and um, many plants in Iowa, et cetera. So um, as a result, the FE's membership was, throughout its history, was over 80% white. But nonetheless, the union um, had an extraordinary uh, commitment to combating racism, and that was more than rhetorical. So what do I mean by that? Well, for example, the top leadership of the union, so its executive board and vice presidents, um, they, uh, the FE made it at a point of including African Americans in that top leadership. So from 1940 six on, the FE had two, one vice president and one executive board member that were African Americans. That was unheard of at that time. There were no other unions that had that kind of representation uh, for African Americans in their top leadership. Not communist unions, not anti-communist unions, not the UAW, not the steel workers, not the United Electrical Workers. So that was extraordinary. Recognized by um, entities like the Chicago Defender as being um, something quite unusual and, and noteworthy. Um, so there was that commitment at the top. There was also a push by the FE in terms of, again, what they were fighting for um, in their contracts, which made a big difference for African Americans. So for example, FE plants F, under um, international harvester plants that were recognized, that were um, organized by the FE, uh, had plant-wide rather than departmental seniority. And that was something that made a huge difference as African Americans increasingly were hired um, after, during and after World War II, their ability to be able to get the better jobs in plants um, was much easier if there was plant-wide seniority. That was something the FE specifically promised to African Americans when they organized, when they began organizing in the late 30s and through World War II, and they achieved that. And that was something that was also recognized by black workers as an important distinction that the FE had. And then another main focus of my book, as you know, is the FE's organizing drive in Louisville. The International Harvester, like so many other corporations after World War II, decided to move south um, to for various reasons, including to get out from under uh, the union that um, had successfully organized its plants in Chicago and elsewhere. So they moved to, they opened up a big plant in Louisville, Kentucky, which was a segregated community. They did hire African Americans, um, and the FE, in its organizing drive there, when it was up against other unions, made it very clear to both the black and white workers that were being hired at the plant that, that the FE was committed to interracial solidarity. It was committed to fighting for black workers to get, um, they, to be able to compete for the best jobs in the shop. And they took those conversations directly to white workers and black workers um, and didn't soft pedal that commitment and managed to, uh, to win that organizing drive in 1947. Uh, um, and so, proved that that sort of commitment to interracial solidarity by making the argument to both white and black workers that the company is trying to split you apart for its benefit and that only through a united front by uniting both black and white workers in this plant can we get the kind of gains that you both deserve. Um, they made that case. They uh, won the argument. They won the organizing drive and went on to um, build an extraordinarily cohesive uh, 
local in Louisville. Yeah, it's a fantastic story about what, uh, really a great story that you tell about what happened in Louisville, uh, the, you know, bringing these southern white workers who had grown up with, uh, in segregated, well, both whites and blacks growing up historically in segregation, pitted, essentially pitted against one another by other employers and by the law. And uh, it's just an amazing story about how on the shop floor at the rank and file members, shop stewards, and but, you know, and, I mean, this wasn't a case where all the, the three or four leaders of the union were on the floor. It was it was workers talking to one another. Right, and uh, in in my book, I talked, and, and much of the research that I did for this book actually was done uh, many decades ago because this grew out of a dissertation that I wrote and then kind of shelved and didn't publish and now have um, reopened reopened the story and went back to those interviews and, and told the story in a different way. So um, I actually talked to many of the workers, most of whom now have um, – long gone, but um, who were both in the, you know, who were leaders in the union, both black and white. So their stories are really central to um, the Louisville um, local story that I tell. And what's really extraordinary, again, is that we do have workers telling their own battles with their own internal battles, overcoming racism. And this is both black workers and white workers, black workers who are distrustful of working with whites and um, white workers who had grown up um, with a legacy of segregation and racism and uh, in their families that came from rural Kentucky in many instances to, to Louisville to, to start working in these plants, this plant and uh, how this union forced them to recognize the detrimental legacy that this toxic legacy that they um, were part of and overcame that, you know, by these continuing conversations. One of the uh, extraordinary people who gets involved with the FE in Louisville is Ann Braden, the noted civil rights activist who um, was in Louisville while the FE was organizing. She is, becomes very central to the FE's outreach and organizing efforts, she and her husband Carl Braden. And she talks about the constant campaign that the FE carried on to convince white and black workers of the need to um, work together, of the, of the need for solidarity, and how that was the only way that workers um, could win was by working, was by coming together. And so it was, it was a constant effort. It was in the shop. It was in the community. It was uh, not just to workers, but outreach to workers' spouses. So um, it, was a, it was hard work. <laughs> And um, and difficult to keep up on a on a continual basis, but they uh, they did as best as has you know I think that this example proves first of all that it's possible that despite our notion of uh, white workers in the South sometimes being among those deplorables who are irredeemable, um, what's kind of extraordinary in the among these voices are those white workers who do come out of extraordinarily racist families who say, look, I, through the union, through through the experience that they gained by working together with black workers, they recognize um, how um, toxic that legacy was and what they needed to, how they needed to overcome their own feelings of racism to, um, to achieve something better. Of course, we know that's true for white workers, it was also true for black workers, that, that many of the, that the black leaders of the local often had to, you know, work also to convince 
uh, African-American workers of the necessity for that kind of solidarity. And so it was a, it was a constant campaign for, for everybody. And, and the fact that the FE started out with um, both white and black organizers in the plant was um, part of um, that commitment and that proved to workers, um, both black and white, that the union um, represented them, looked like them, um, was going to fight for them. So that was that was part of the way they accomplished that. But it was, you know, and I think that's one of the most interesting and perhaps valuable aspects of the book is that it really does go into that Louisville struggle in um, great detail and uh, how continual and constant it was, but but what great benefits it brought to the workers there who ended up with the highest factory wages in the South, they argued, and, and no one um, really stood up to, to dispute that. That kind of solidarity, that kind of uh, unity uh, has actual, genuine, tangible benefits that can be measured. And you note in the book that Effie, once they organized that plant in Louisville, they didn't they didn't wait around in terms of trying to uh, put pressure on the company. They went on strike quite, <laughs> pretty pretty quickly after that organizing drive. Right. It's I mean again, it's part of that sort of the militant character of the union that um, from top to bottom that as soon as they won what was a difficult organizing drive, they were challenged by other unions, including the UAW. Um, during that organizing drive, um, that so that was that was draining enough and difficult enough. But almost immediately, the union and the FE said to International Harvester, who had come to the South in part because they wanted to take advantage of the lower wage scale that the that um, was prevalent in the South, and so they had planned. International Harvester had, and the management had planned to institute a lower wage scale, lower wages than anywhere else um, that the company paid elsewhere. And so this, what was called the Southern Differential, that was what um, it was dubbed, this lower wage scale, the Southern Differential Strike that begins in 1947 was, again, another extraordinary um, event. So that this was a challenge to that notion that the that companies could go south or as we now see, go um, completely out of the country and uh, just to chase lower wages and, and bad conditions for workers. So the FE said, we're not going to have that. They went on a, uh, a long strike and ultimately uh, beat back this southern differential. So they proved that, again, that kind of interracial unity and uh, militancy can overcome uh, company intentions to impose low wages and bad conditions on workers. So that was a, a important victory at the, at the very moment when uh, corporations across the board were looking to the South as their anti-union haven. Um, if other unions had been able to or had tried to achieve what the FE did, we might have a very different labor movement in this country today. But I want to get back to something else that you talk about in the book, and. Um... It's, you know, it's this the idea and expressed by FE leaders and, and shop stewards that um, the idea that management has no right to exist, which is a direct challenge <laughs> to capitalism, that kind of harkens back to the anarchists, that harkens back to the industrial workers of the world, uh, the earlier part of the 20th century. Um, and so what did that mean to, what, what did that basically mean to union leaders and to, and to rank and file, the rank and file to say management has no right to exist. Pretty pretty significant statement. 
Yeah, it's a great quote from uh, Milt Burns, one of the FE's top officials. And uh, so, and that really did kind of encapsulate what they believed and how the union behaved, again, from the top leadership on down. But what, again, what is, what does that mean? I mean, part of, part of what that meant, especially in relation to International Harvester, was that, again, that the FE was not going to accept the increasingly prevalent post-war notion that we should have this concept of um, labor management cooperation, that both um, workers and that unions and management could work together to, that we we're going to have this increasing, uh, expanding economic um, pie and that everybody could benefit. And the FE's uh, notion, their, their Marxist perspective, again, made them think that uh, it was not possible for workers to get more unless the company was getting less, unless um, the, the McCormick family, the very well-to-do McCormick family and uh, management was getting less. So because, again, because they believed that profit was, in fact, what you know, Marx refers to as an extraction of surplus value, that, uh, that you can't have increased profits without it coming out of um, the hides of workers. Um, and so there is also this belief that if you concede to management these prerogatives that um, managers after um, World War II um, were insisting on, that in corporate suites they wanted to define what management could um, and would be entitled to do and workers would, um, unions would be able to negotiate a better deal, they'd get some better wages, they'd get some better working conditions, but the, the um, control over how work was done, what work would be, how fast it was done, all of those actual workplace issues, those were, those were management's um, right to determine. And so the FE believes that if you concede that, if you give, if you give over those rights to management, um, that will come back to haunt you even if you're getting a few extra bucks in your paycheck. And, and I think we're actually, um, in this pandemic, we're actually seeing that um, uh, the example of that and what that means in, the term, in, in terms of how um, workplace safety, uh, work line speeds for all, in all these um, packing houses and in the, in meatpacking plants, et cetera, um, for nurses on the job. These are all things that, that the labor movement more or less gave over um, after World War II to, um, to management to be able to determine. And so if uh, that, that the fact that the quality of life and control over what your workplace is like is something that is, you know, generally speaking, outside a union's purview um, or outside a worker's purview is one of the the things that the FE challenged um, and believed that uh, management should not have those rights. Workers who had a vested interest through their the labor they'd put in um, should have just as much right to determine um, what happens, how work is is arranged, who, how fast it's done, how it's done. Those things should be um, part of a worker's um, part, part of the union's power. And in fact, um, as I begin the book or take the book all the way back to Haymarket and the McCormick family, and um, uh, one of the reasons that I focus on the FE's relationship with 
International Harvester is because of that historic connection, but it's also because International Harvester was one of the most powerful and important um, corporations, uh, one of the founding industrial empires in America, uh, we tend, just like with the FE, it's, it's been um, s largely forgotten because International Harvester went out of business in the 1980s, but it was once the fourth largest corporation in the world. It was certainly the, the um, uh, predominant company in the farm equipment industry for its existence. And so the book uh, is framed in terms of the relationship between the FE and International Harvester. International Harvester was not only important because of its size and uh, international uh, uh, predominance, but because it had pioneered a lot of the anti-union techniques that we sort of take for granted now. So the McCormick, Cyrus McCormick II, who uh, was in charge of the company all the way back from Haymarket well into the 1930s, uh, moved from the kind of open, ham-handed anti-unionism that uh, had characterized his behavior uh, in the Haymarket era into more sophisticated um, techniques that tended to, to uh, they were sort of the, the iron fist and the velvet glove. So into welfare capitalism, and as Harvester was one of the first companies to pioneer company unions, uh, so trying to convince workers that they didn't need these outside entities, as they were, as the company liked to call them, because we're going to have worker work councils that um, that can address your grievances. But um, as I explore in the book, that turned out to be a complete sham. International Harvester is one of the first companies to introduce an industrial relations department to um, also to sort of cloak um, anti-unionism in the in the trappings of a department that was going to address workers' needs. They were among the first unions to pioneer the use of anti-union law firms. Um, so this was a formidable company to try to organize. It's, uh, as I note in the book, John L. Lewis himself called it probably the worst anti-union enterprise he knew of when the FE set out to organize it and was dubious about whether or not they'd be able to succeed. So you've got this titanic corporation uh, uh, with a sophisticated anti-union um, strategy in place, uh, uh, challenged by this small but extremely militant um, left-wing union, and the left-wing union, at least for a time, manages to get the better of this company. So there are um, lessons there for organizers today. All of these unions, um, which really struggled, obviously, to uh, to get their base for the UAW, for the United Electrical Workers, the Packing House Workers, Farm Equipment Workers. You know, it had been really touch and go during the 30s, given how much, uh, how powerful uh, these corporations that they were taking on and how um, strenuously those companies had resisted any kind of unionization. Um, and then we have World War II, and, and uh, and through the, you know, to some extent through the intervention of government boards, and uh, you know, we really have these unions establish a foothold in these industries. So you've got the UAW and General Motors and Ford and and the FE and International Harvester and the Steelworkers and with U.S. Steel. And so, um, you know, they the unions come out of World War II with a considerable 
amount of power. And you've got a lot of unhappy corporate executives um, trying to figure out what to, to do about that. And again, this battle over management prerogatives is the key battle. So a lot of these companies, these massively wealthy companies were willing to give up some money as long as they retained that control. That was the key battle in the 46, the big 1946 strike wave. Um, and, but you know, so these companies decide that if they're going to have to deal with unions, some unions are better than others. And um, so it's at this point when you begin to see the real crackdown begin on those left-wing unions, those unions that don't want to concede those management prerogatives, that want to make the battle more than just about how many more cents we're going to put into the paycheck every time we negotiate one, an increasingly longer contract, are, is the battle really going to be about who gets to control uh, things on the shop floor and workplaces? Um, and so corporations begin to sort of orient themselves towards the lesser of two evils. So those unions led by anti-communists and primarily the principal leading anti-communist unionist after World War II is Walter Ruther, head of the biggest CIO union, um, and a vehement anti-communist, uh, social democrat, but an anti-communist. So um, you begin to see things like the Taft-Hartley Act, which again, unions came out of World War II with, an, with, a, with a lot of power. Taft-Hartley really cripples um, unions in a lot of different ways, um, including making it clear that strikes between contracts, things called wildcat strikes, are illegal. Um, it also institutes um, the what what becomes the big battle or the big difficulty for those left-wing unions, which is the the fact that unions are obliged to sign affidavits. Their leaders are that they're not communists if they're going to take advantage of um, National Labor Relations Board machinery. So uh, labor leaders who are ideologically Marxist, communists are, are, are weighing whether or not they want to compromise their own beliefs in order to be able to maintain the, um, the unions that they lead. And so that's a big battle that's detailed in the book. Um, and uh, then, obviously, as the Cold War heats up and anti-communism becomes um, the uh, one of the main tenants in American political life. You have all of these unions that are um, tarred with that communist um, brush being hauled before um, the House Un-American Activities Committee, being um, pilloried in the press. And so the, the drumbeat becomes ever louder and more difficult for these unions to um, be able to survive. And Walter Ruther, again, at the head of the biggest union, sets his sights on the farm equipment industry and the left-wing FE, and it's here where you have this really pivotal ideological battle between two unions trying to go after the same workers when, um, when one union tries to raid another union. Um, so instead of organizing workers who don't have union representation, instead of going after unorganized workers, the UAW is putting a lot of resources, money, and organizers into plants that already had union representation. They just were represented by unions that had the wrong, as far as Ruther was concerned, political ideology. So um, that raiding campaign commences um, in 
uh, full force after World War II and um, drains a lot of resources from the FE. They're fighting the government. They're fighting the press. They're fighting um, the more powerful segment of their own labor movement that they helped build. It's a, um, uh, you know, it's a tremendously uh, difficult and ever-draining battle for these unions, these, this small handful of left-wing unions, the FE among them, to be able to, to wage. Yeah, and, and Walter Ruther, of course, one of the first things that he did within the UAW after he became president in 1946 was essentially to purge um, the left from his own union, uh, workers at, for example, at the River Rouge plant in Ford, Local 600, where they, where they were basically expelled from the union because of their political beliefs. And, and then that purge essentially just went, went uh, all the way across to the point where uh, the CIO in 1949-1950 expelled 11 unions, including the FE, uh, for alleged uh, communist domination um, was the terminology that was used. Um, the interesting thing to me about that, if I could, is that while the left unions, the, and you mentioned, the, I mean, the FE, we had, they had communist in leadership um, and in the ranks, but they, they didn't, I mean, this whole idea of communist domination is kind of a, um, it's, it's a red herring to, to be, I mean, <laughs> there, there were many times where these unions flat out that where, where the communist party would suggest or say that they think this is, should happen and the other and unions would say no. I mean, when the UE, United Electrical Workers, left the CIO in 1949, um, before they were officially expelled, Communist Party, including you know people that were inside the UE, said we shouldn't do that. When FE uh, ended its strike against International Harvester that you mentioned in the book in 1952, Communist Party that supposedly dominated the union said no, don't do that. And later on in 1955, when um, the AFL and the CIO merged, both the International, the Longshore and Warehouse Union, and the UE. Uh, the Communist Party encouraged all unions to, to go mainstream and join the AFL-CIO mm -hmm. and the ILWU and the UE said no. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I do talk about that, the, the use of the word domination, and that's clearly, uh, I think, fairly well uh, acknowledged, not really the right word, especially when it comes to unions that had all kinds of different um, levels, for one thing, of um, influence by communists or, you know, some of them, some of these unions did have members of the Communist Party who were in their leadership. Some of them um, didn't, but um, but at any rate, yeah, the word domination is is wrong. But I but I also you know don't want to go all the way to the other extreme and suggest that um, they were just like the other unions. It's just that they were more militant. Um, I do believe that the right. um, the influence of the Communist Party and also it was complicated. I mean, as I note in the book, there are times when the FE when there were splits among the leadership about what to do, for example, in, in response to those Taft-Hartley affidavits. And it caused um, some deep divisions, both within the FE and between the FE and other uh, unions that were connected to the Communist Party. So, again, that means that there wasn't really domination, but there certainly was um, disagreement about the extent to which they would um, adopt what the Communist Party wanted them um, to do. But it also, but but there was a distinct difference and not between the FE as a communist influence union and the UAW as a decidedly anti-communist union. And again, not just in terms of 
the lofty pronouncements or the political judgments about the Marshall Plan or about Taft-Hartley that came from the top leadership, but about the way the union oriented itself, those unions oriented themselves towards the companies that they negotiated with. So Walter Ruther, after um, after trying in 1946 and being rebuffed by General Motors to really influence, to try to influence things beyond what um, unions now traditionally are allowed to do. So he was trying to, for example, in, to um, extend price controls past World War II. He wanted the union to be able to have a say in the price of cars, not just the wages that people got paid for them, um, recognizing that auto workers bought those cars that they produced. But GM said no to that. They they endured a long strike to make it clear again that the, what what management believed its prerogatives to be. And Ruther came to accept that bargain, that um, in exchange for good benefits, company-paid health care, good wage increases every time they negotiated a contract, that those management prerogatives were off limits. And that's the philosophical difference. Um, the FE never accepted that bargain and believed that that was going to come back to haunt um, union workers, union members, and the entire working class if they gave that kind of power, um, if they conceded that sort of power to management. So, and that was a direct result of their Marxist orientation, their, um, the, the fact that they had been members of the Communist Party and had that kind of belief in, maintained their belief that um, profit extraction um, was wrong and that surplus value existed and, and all those sorts of uh, battles that they took to the shop floor. Your father was a member of the Communist Party, when he, and he was one of the organizers of the FE. Your father actually, uh, when when the UAW finally um, kind of absorbed the FE, I wouldn't call it a merger. I mean, they basically mm-hmm. took them in because FE had not many options. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, they they, yeah. they didn't have a lot of options at that point. What was interesting to me about that is Ruther, who had purged the left from his own union, he actually was willing to bring your father and other FE mm-hmm. organizers, left-wingers, into the UAW, and your father ended up working for the UAW for a number right. of years. And that's your mm-hmm. recollection of your father's history right. um, when you were when you were growing up as the UAW, not mm-hmm. so much the FE. But you talk about how your father's his heritage in the FE never left him. I guess is the way I would put it. Right. What what he what he did and what he learned and what he thought of the FE he carried forward in his work in the UAW. Right, and to some extent this is a family story as I uh, make clear when I and when the book first starts. So as you note, I grew up, uh, my father worked for the UAW as a staff member for the UAW when I was growing up. So that was the world that I knew, the UAW, and I only had sort of a dim knowledge that there had been this other union that my father was involved in before that, the farm equipment workers. I knew he always thought that that was, that that union, that there was something special about it, something um, uh, something about its accomplishments that were extraordinary, but I, you know, as a he died when I was in college, and um, I had not really begun to explore this history while he was still alive. And I also did; I was aware that he had been a member of the Communist Party. That was not something he was ashamed of or denounced at any point in his life. But it also wasn't something that um, I was not regaled with lots of stories of his red past either. I just knew that he was, you know, committed to militant, you're committed to trade unionism and aggressive unionism. But um, it was it was the UAW that I really um, uh, just by 
that absorbed its history by by being around it so much. So it was when I was in college and became interested in labor history and thought, gee, there is this union I know a little bit about that really nobody's written anything about. So I'm going to start exploring that story that um, I got into that. And and um, one of the, the interesting legacies, I was in college when uh, the big international harvester strike um, took place in 1970. Nine, which was um, uh, a record-breaking strike, and there was something. And it was an extraordinarily uh, militant strike, and there were all these workers, you know, staying out for a really long time, and they ended up winning this this strike in the midst of um, uh, what was beginning to be a pretty anti-labor climate. And so I thought, well, how did, where did they get this tradition of militancy? Where did this come from at International Harvester? So uh, again, I'm looking at how that heritage, even once the FE ends up being absorbed by the UAW, how that continues um, among the rank and file, how the contracts continue to be better even than the auto contracts. And so all of that uh, heritage, again, stretching, I think, all the way back to um, the tradition of Haymarket, uh, continued to affect what workers in this industry um, did and what they got in their contracts. And so even once they were constrained by the framework of labor management cooperation, those organizers, not just my father, but others who came in from the FE, continue to push harder and fight harder, I think, for things than, um, than even within the UAWs, other um, within the auto industry managed to get. Yeah, I think Walter Ruther, for all of his anti-communism and his willingness to purge left from the UAW back in the 40s and early 50s. I think when the uh, FE became part of the UAW, he recognized that uh, people like your father and other uh, radicals in leadership of the FE had strong support among the rank and file, and the rank and file really believed in them and trusted them. And I think Walter Ruther was smart enough to realize that if he fired all of these folks, that it would just make this bringing in the FE that much more difficult for himself. Plus, of course, he was working from a position of tremendous power. Yes, <laughs> so, he yes, could, yes, so he could, yes, so he could yes. just kind of say, oh, well, we'll let these former Reds in, you know, no problem. It, it's important, I think, to give Walter Ruther his due, as I try to in this book. He is not, you know, it, it's not just the anti-communism, obviously, that defined him as one of the most important labor leaders in American history. And he was nothing if not, shrewd and so yes having basically won the war he could then afford to kind of absorb this little um you know rabble band of um left wingers and you know he did make sure that they disavowed communism um i will say that my father and none of the other fe leaders ever informed on anyone that was something they were not willing to do they never named names and in fact you know that story and how that was that managed that you know became part of the um, that the Supreme Court finally recognized that um, uh, that people can testify before Congress and not have to name names. They might um, talk about their own history, but don't have to talk about anybody else was something that's also surprisingly connected to the FE's story. So that Supreme Court case was important too. Um, but at any rate, uh, they never informed on anyone else, but they left the Communist Party. And um, But then to, in order to become part of the UAW, that was part of the the clear bargain that they um, that they made. What lessons can the labor movement learn today? I mean, obviously, 
the FE proved that walking out gets results. I mean, it kind of goes back to the IWW slogan, direct action gets the goods, right? I mean, right. That yes. if, you, yes. if you do it now, you might get something. So I guess that raises the question is, is how well can workers fight back if they can't walk off the job? And should they have that kind of power today? And what are some other lessons that you, that you have drawn from um, your study of the FE? Uh, aggressive union representation is necessary for workers to get what they deserve. And the FE is certainly a case uh, in point about what aggressive union representation at all levels can um, mean for workers. Um, and that means both, you know, more in their paychecks, but also um, more control over the way uh, their lives um, and their workplaces um, look like. So, they'll be safer, they'll be more empowered, they'll feel better about their jobs if they have um, aggressive union representation. But, you know, what I think is also needed is a, is a recognition that we're, we're not just talking about militancy, we're not just talking about um, hot-headedness, um, we're talking about a philosophy that's grounded in the recognition that uh, labor and management have separate interests, that there is no, um, there is no way to, um, to, uh, for workers to um, get more unless um, companies are giving up what they, um, more of what they um, have. So the bosses have to get less, in other words, for workers to get more. And so, you know, again, it goes back to the title of the book. I think it's necessary for workers and the unions that represent them to acknowledge that there is this grudge because something is being taken from workers every day under capitalism and that they uh, deserve to get. And so we need unions that acknowledge that grudge and that act on it and that um, work like uh, hell every day to make sure that workers are getting more of what they deserve. And But that doesn't necessarily have to mean constant walkouts. I mean, one of the points I make in the book actually is that there were other tactics that the FE was endeavoring to utilize more of like slowdowns, which are less dramatic, don't get the same kind of attention that strikes and um, often do, but that in fact may have been more effective. So um, you just have to adapt to, um, you know, figure out where the power that your employer has comes from and what kind of tactics will um, hurt them the most and get workers uh, more of what they deserve to succeed. So it's not just about strikes. I don't think we need to constantly focus on strikes or wildcat strikes or general strikes or all of those things that are, that are um, very um, racy and exciting sounding. But, you know, there are other tactics that can be um, equally as valuable in, in uh, a union's arsenal. And obviously now that workplaces have changed considerably from what uh, the 1930s and 40s, uh, Unions need to be adaptive, but they always need to recognize that the interests of the bosses are not ever going to be the same as the interests of workers. And so that's the, that has to be the framework. And that does require, I think, a left-wing orientation, a socialist orientation um, that most you know, big labor leaders these days are lacking in the U.S. So in, so in a sense, because part of your the title of your book, the subtitle of your book is uh, 
a story of big capital, radical labor, and class war in the American heartland. What you're basically describing now is that from, from management's perspective, there is a class war. They're engaging in class war against <laughs> right, workers, right. right? So I always like to ask people if there's any final thoughts that you have for our listeners. Um, yeah, I would just say yes. I hope people do buy the book. I think it's um, one of the things I've been pleased about its reception is that I worked hard to make it a really readable and accessible book. And so I'm pleased that people have found it that. It's not a, a dense and difficult academic text. It's a written to kind of read like a novel, and I think it kind of does. So I encourage people to, to read it um, from that perspective. And I would just uh, underscore what you said in, our, in your last comments, that uh, I think the, the problem the labor movement faces today is that workers know, at least um, uh, on a visceral level, that they're in a war <laughs> with, right. um, with their bosses. Uh, they just don't have the unions that uh, articulate that enough, and um, and they don't have a union leadership that recognizes that. And so we need to to move in that direction. I mean, all we need to look at again are is what's happening to workers right now in meat packing plants across the country uh, to recognize that uh, their workers are literally risking their lives um, on the job, and we need powerful unions that. Um, that stand up to managers who would who would take advantage of them, not just in pandemics, but uh, every day uh, in, when those line speeds are increased uh, and workers risk their life and limb to, to put food on the table for all of us. Uh, we need unions who recognize that, who, who believe they have a grudge against managers who would do that. Um, yeah. So that's what we we need. So. Yeah, and today and, and today a remi- reminder to. Our listeners, that most of those workers that we're talking about that are working in those plants, many of them are immigrant workers. Whether it's here in the U.S. or it's up in Alberta, I just read about a, some plants that had to close up in Alberta because of the yeah. pandemic. Uh, well, thanks, thanks again, Tony, for uh, taking the time. Uh, and I just want to add that, yeah, your book is very, very readable. It does read; it's a great story. So thanks for doing well, I that. I appreciate that. Thank you. All I right. appreciate that, and, and I'll look forward to. Hearing from folks who've read it, I hope so. Thanks so much. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks again. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and a program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.